have lots of fear. Um, and so I, I pile as much love and curiosity as I can on it and things seem to work out. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Peter Schaubacher, CEO at Nearshore Cyber, former CISO, advisor to MSPs, etc. Yes, he's another one of my illustrious guests with 25 years in cyber. See his LinkedIn profile for more. We're talking about all that we have learned outside of cybersecurity that has helped us in cyber, and you should listen in because it's a fun conversation. So, Peter, thanks so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thanks for taking the time with me. I've been looking forward to this. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford, President and CISO at Alan Alford Consulting. All right, so you and I both have some weird backgrounds when it comes to this whole cyber thing, and I'm going to dive into mine first. I'll share my weird background, and then we'll let you do yours. I spent eight years as an undergraduate, and people always laugh at this. I was an undergraduate for eight years. I literally took whatever classes I felt like taking to learn whatever I wanted to learn. I did sociology. I did psychology. I did symbolic logic. I did philosophy. I did political science. I did ethics. I did uh, urban studies. I did English lit, uh, lots of English lit. Um mm. I even studied Spanish for several semesters. Um, and I finally settled at the University of Texas's ACT Lab, ACT Lab, which stood for Advanced Communication Technologies. It was this think tank that was a mashup of techno geeks meets non-technical disciplines. Like it was a very deliberate mashing up of, of you know, nerds meets not nerds. Mm. And we had folks that were represented from fine arts. We even had somebody from the ballet department in there. Uh, we had sociologists, political scientists, and all these folks all mixed in with what was at the time a very nascent internet. Uh, World Wide Web had just come out. You know, Gophers was running strong. Um, and I ran a Moo there. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Moo, but it was uh, based on MUDs, the, the, like the, basically the mm. online text-based Dungeons & Dragons, right? Moo came out of uh, Xerox Park in... Um, yeah, Palo Alto. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in Palo Alto, right? So uh, Moo stood for MUD Object Oriented, and it it lost its specific purpose of being a Dungeons and Dragons type game and instead was literally just an object oriented environment that was immersive that you could create any kind of thing you wanted to create. And it was just an interactive world. So we built this virtual fake West Texas town called Point Moot, Texas. And Point Moot was all about, um, it was a community of 2000 users, most of whom were contributing actively either by programming or by UX type stuff. But of course this is all, you know, ASCII art because it's all screen based stuff. And we had, uh, I had a team of probably 12 senior programmers. I had a community of 2,000. And I was managing all this stuff as an undergrad, right? So I learned all kinds of things out of this discipline. This was nothing to do with cyber, but I learned leadership. I learned object-oriented programming. I learned political science and sociology. We had all these social scientists that were part of the community that were studying and learning and writing about cyber. We got written up in books and magazines. And so this whole weird liberal arts foundation sort of mashed up with technology at that one pivotal moment in my life. And I never saw technology the same ever again. I always felt like all that stuff that was informing my use of technology would always be there and always informing it. And I know that's a long rambling story, mm -hmm. but I wanted to hear, I know you've got kind of a similar crazy background, like tell me your tale. Yeah, but before I get into that, did you know that Marcus Ranum cut his teeth in muds? You should talk to him. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Marcus's love was not like 
security, which is uh -huh. what made him famous and great. But um, and yeah, he was like the first webmaster of the White House. But he used to talk about how his his if if he couldn't do cyber or just well back then network security, he would have been in high performance computing, and his his heart was in in muds. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I, I thought a lot. I think a lot about about kind of the origin question. I think a lot about origin questions in general. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, what do you do? Like, I, I, around nine eleven time, actually around the time of the, the Balkan Wars, I started to think yeah. about where that stuff started. And ultimately, you go back to Rome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe I should go back to Rome. But let's do this. Um, how old is the universe? Billions and billions, right? It's like something like 11, right? 11 yeah. billion years. And the Earth, somewhere around, I think, 5 billion is kind yep. of what we figured out. And then, um, you know, there's, there's people. You know, humans show up somewhere around 100,000 to a quarter million years ago, depending on where you draw the line. Right. Industrial Revolution and the conquest of the Americans by Europeans starts about 500 years ago. Yep. Um, Internet starts, I forget. Yeah, I start I got it on an 89, I think. Yeah. Um the you know, and it dawned on me when I was a kid that there was something special about this time, and it really hit me um as an adult. Um, I think it was ninety-four, my my you know, friend, the late great Halcyon Woodward got me. Um, on into BBS and he got me on a thing called the Annex BBS in LA. Right on. And there was a special section called Internet Relay Chat. And I sort of IRC, baby. Yeah, I stumbled in and it was, you know, it was sort of this weird combination of text and stuff. And um, WorldNet BBS, if you remember that. Mm -hmm. um, and I know I, I, I found myself in a, a chat with people in Finland and I'm like, this is magic. You know, I, I had my Arthur C. Clark, Clark moment. Yeah, I thought there's something there's something really special happening here because I'm talking to people in Finland for basically free. I think it was I think it was paying the annex like forty nine dollars a month for yeah. unlimited, and I had a static IP address and stuff. Yeah. You know, so there's there's that, but it also goes back to you know my uh, my childhood. My my parents are you know musicians and uh, and teachers. My dad's a retired English professor. Right uh, they're they're members of a uh, a religious cult, which I'm I shook off in my teens. <laughs> but, oh, wow. but we were we were taught that we were going to run the world. Right? Okay. That we were, you know, it was one of those things. It was basically a hippie offshoot of Islam. I won't name it because I don't want to, you know, I'm still friends over there. Uh, but we were told that we were special, mm -hmm. um, and we were told that we were going to change the world because of whatever, you know, like every every religion it's probably still considered a cult because they don't have enough real estate yet but there was that it came out of iran the, the these people were are, are uh, persecuted in iran a lot of other places in the middle east and so they would come to the united states and like stay with my family so i got to meet you know iranian refugees i got to meet people who were sort of on um missionary stuff from all over the world so mm -hmm. every you know most of the people i knew had remarkable backgrounds um, and they were mostly well-to-do in Iran and, you know, uh, well-educated, just, just incredible people. But speak, you know, I, I grew up around people who spoke like five languages and had four passports. Right. Um, and I was a geeky kid playing Dungeons and Dragons and listened to, you know, Ozzy Osbourne and 
you know, fortunately I found the Ramones and the Cramps. But I always had this feeling like this is how people are supposed to be. Like this is what it's, what it's, there's something about um, life that demands more of us than a job or a degree. And certainly I tried to do that. I tried normalcy, Um, but it never quite fit. So I would read a lot. I would read a ton. Um, a lot of, of, of what was in my dad's library. Um, he, he mostly was into like Anthony Trollope, which was a huge yawn, uh-huh. but I, but I read like, I read March really early. I read, uh, a lot of Shakespeare. I read like Julius Caesar when I was 12. Um, but, and I also wrote, wrote a lot, uh, read a lot of good poetry. And at the same time I had my TI 99 4A yeah. and I was, you know, I was, you know, I was like, and I was taking classes on, Learn on in basic on a Commodore pet. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think I kind of like, you know, IT now just attracts people like us. I got into cybersecurity um, having done a stint at Earthlink in the very early days. Like I showed up a, a, the week they announced all you could eat dial up internet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was nuts. It was crazy. Um, the quality was all over the map. We go, we'd have like, Email would go on for two weeks and people wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't quit. Right. You know, um, that, that uh, somehow turned me into a tech writer because I'm, I'm good at list making. It was around 95. 98, um, I uh, picked up a temp job at City as a tech writer. They were going to migrate firewall um, operations from New York to Delaware. And... It turned out there's all this other stuff that wasn't getting done. I I've, I got stuff done. I wound up running the first SOC I ever worked in with no experience in security. I barely knew how TCPIP worked. And I had, you know, I had root on everything. Oh, wow. <laughs> right? Back in the day. And it was like, yeah, I mean, it hasn't, let's, let's face it, like the, the field has not matured much beyond that. Um, it's, it's most of what we have is amounts of window dressing. Because yeah. the people who are coming in through this, what we think of as like the, the right way, they don't know what's going on. But here's, and I'll wrap this up. I mean, my case is um, is one where I'm not particularly good at, at anything, really. Like, I'm not good at any one thing. What I, what I do have is curiosity and uh, love. You know, I love the people I work with. I love my clients. If, they, if I don't, they're not, they stop being my clients. Right. I love the opportunities to explore the surprises. I love intrusion analysis and IR. And, you know, it's impossible to to pin this field down. I actually just posted about this last night, um, about the fact that that the the field defies definition and defies professionalization. Mm -hmm. There is no one cybersecurity. No, there isn't. Yeah. uh, And we don't even know what it is yet. And I love that. Right. Hopefully we'll figure it out, you know, before the planet becomes uninhabitable. Yeah. It's interesting to me, you know, we talk about all the time on this show, people talk about, you know, we compare ourselves to like, you know, gap rules for accounting and the fact that there's no similar set of rules for being a CISO. And, you know, what's the, what's the old adage being a CISO is, is like, uh, you know, being a CISO today is like being a CFO without any accounting principles or practices, right? You're just making Mm. it up as you go along. We, we hear these things all the time, and I think you're right. I, I think we're still such a nascent field that we're starting to cohese. We're starting to define ourselves, and I think that leaves us with a very important moment where we can help 
continue to drive these extra influences, right? Like, you know, you, you, you point out that there is no one discipline, and I saw your post this morning. I saw it, and mm-hmm. you're talking about anthropology and, and all these other influencers and psychology and all these things that you need to know to some degree to be successful in cyber. And I think every facet of cyber leans more on one of those than another. You know, if you're into threat intel and, you know, trying to, trying to you know, reverse engineer the bad guys in the SOC, psychology obviously is going to come to the forefront. Mm-hmm. If you're, you know, looking at geopolitics, that's going to be a big influence on cyber. So I, I think... The lack of definition is a suck in the sense that, you know, we don't have gap. We don't have standards. It's really difficult to sell it upstairs and, and, and to see the value of it and articulate the value in the greater world outside of cyber. But I think it's a plus in the sense that we still get to get to bring in these other influences in play, to your point. Well, and I, I mean, I, we have sort of an advantage in cyber in that we're aware of the destabilization that we're undergoing, that we grapple with. Right. The rest of the world is going through it without knowledge of it. Yes. You know, um, and I mean, there's some there's some spots that have more stability. Like lately, I've been like revisiting TOGAF and enterprise and architecture and the organization of the CIO side. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the CIO has an organization that contains the necessary functions, such as business analysts, enterprise architecture, financial analysts, program management, then, yeah, all that stuff. And then, and then, it was, and then the, the CISOs are always like, well, why do I report to the CIO? It's like, cause you don't have those people, right? You don't have those functions. So it, it actually, you know, uh, um, uh, segregation of duties and like the conf, you know, the tension between the CIO and the CISO aside, like if you don't have those things, like until, until CISOs, one, understand what their mission is. Yeah. And two, have the, um, the equivalent functions of the CIO under them. They're going to have to borrow. Like that's the yeah. best that we can get. You know, the, the broader problem, of course, is like nobody knows what a CISO does. And most of the people who wield the title have no idea. They're basically just like, as I like to say, they're, they're, they're information security managers who kind of aged out of the job, right. uh, most of them. Or, and they just hung up a shingle on their leg. Now their rate doubled. Mm-hmm. But, they're no, but they don't understand it. And then the buyers don't know what they're getting. Yeah. And this is why everybody's frustrated. Yeah. No, I agree. There's a lack of definition. There's a, a lack of consistency. Um, you know, I just wrote an article for a French magazine that's I think it's actually getting published today. Uh, basically saying we, we can't have it both ways. We can't whine that we don't have a seat at the table mm-hmm. while also saying our job is to advise and the business owns the risk, yeah. right? Like if we're not seizing ownership and accountability, we're never going to seize authority. And I think that's a huge facet and factor in that is we're the only C-suite that says things like, oh, yeah, but I don't own that. <laughs> yeah. How many CFOs say I don't own finance, right? Like. Oh, I mean, I, I talk, I mean, a lot of what I do is budgets and project management. And we most certainly own that stuff. But yeah, if you don't know, you know it, you don't know it. Like think about all the CISOs who don't know how to buy stuff. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I'm conv- I've come to the conclusion that most open source software shows up when people don't know how to buy commercial software. It's oh, not that it's, it's not that it's not budgeted or couldn't be budgeted. Is they don't know how to, they don't, there's no budgeting process right. or nobody's letting the CISO in on it because they don't, they're like, well, security people is just there when things blow up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we, one of our strengths is actually a major weakness in this regard. We are like the best of us are masters of F around and find out. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I love incidents because, like, when an incident happens, I'm I'm pretty good at handling that stuff. Like, yeah. I'm I love making order out of chaos. A lot yeah, of yeah, yeah, do. yeah. But we're not so because of that. Like, we don't get called when things aren't blowing up. Right. Right. And we don't get good at it. So we don't work that muscle because we don't work that muscle. We don't get good at it because we're not good at get, get good at it. We get an opportunity to work it. Um, and this is, you know, I, I think that there, the way, the ways in which we, we build the field have to be about something other than crisis management. Yes. And games. So much yep. pen testing is games. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. There's, it's almost like we talk about all these disciplines. Game theory <laughs> could, could describe half of what we do in the in the cyberspace. I'm I'm convinced of it. Yeah. Um. You know, and even the jockeying for position and the seat at the table, right? Game theory can deconstruct that and take that one apart too. Um. But you you mentioned you alluded to something earlier, and I'm real curious because this is a you know this is a strong influencer and background for me. Uh, did you ever play in a band? Uh. And and if you did, what was your role like? What was the role of music in your life, and what did you learn from music that's helping you in cybersecurity? Uh, of course, I did. Of course, right I on. played in the band. I don't have my guitars hanging. That is a cliche. I will not. I will not sign up. Won't for have it. the guitars hanging behind you. I, no, no, I mean, look. I'm sorry. I'm probably offending some my friends who have guitars behind them, and they're right. like coming to mind. I actually posted something about this. Like, I, there's a, a go to my LinkedIn. There's some fun stuff this week. Actually, yeah. that thing that I that you mentioned about like the diversity of the field that was my first viral post. It went last night. So I'm, well done yeah yeah, it was like dumb luck it started as a haiku and it just got out of control it's like if 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 ais can write haikus why can't peter there we go you know but um they're better than i am um i uh you know i was a kid my like i said my dad my dad was a musician um and he played woodwinds he had a, a band and he he when he was in the army he was drafted. He enlisted when he was about to be drafted because he could audition for the marching band and set a combat. This was during uh, Korea. Yeah. Well, he was also pacifist. He probably could have opted out on that on that basis too for religious reasons. But he went in, um, still did basic, still blew his ears out with an M1. <laughs> but oops. yeah, yeah. Well, they don't, they didn't give you ear protection in those days, apparently. But anyway, he he did that, and when. You know, I had piano lessons and my sister did it to his kids, but he, he insisted that I take up a band instrument when I was in middle school. So I took up the trombone. Okay. I was, I was pretty good at it, you know, but I really, you know, when I was 15, like a lot of kids, I became a guitar player because mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. there was something about that, like wonderful Brown sound. And I was hearing it in Wagner too, like Wagner invented instruments that had more you know, to them and the, then a distorted guitar, like a power chord at that yeah, same, yeah, yeah. Mm, right. And so, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do a living for a living. I was like, I'm either going to be a musician or a drug dealer. Like, so I think I should probably make a go of this. <laughs> By the way, I, I, I'm a recovered alcoholic. I haven't had a drink since 2006 and I didn't really couldn't, I couldn't get a hold of drugs in those days. So it didn't matter. But the point was, I knew that things were not going to go well for me in life unless I pursued something with gusto and i decided that was gonna be music so i studied i studied with um a fellow named chuck anderson who's still teaching he's in conchahawken pa he's the best guitar teacher on the planet bar none and he taught me things about work and he taught me things about the relationship between dissonance and consonance 
and the inverse ratio between complexity and power, the one and the five, you know, the, um, the octave versus uh, upper partials and why jazz doesn't work when it's really loud. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, stuff like that. So I started to see relationships there and find parallels in the rest of the world. And I was like, I had no musical ideas. I had great chops, no ideas. So I basically dropped it and went into the music business and became an entrepreneur. I ran an illegal booking agency was 19, when I was 19. I couldn't get into the bars where I booked my bands. But I was like, I, I started a business on the back of music. Interesting. You know, so. So music um, led to business led to cyber. Kind of. That's how I went up in L.A. Yep. Working for Earthlink. Yeah. I'll be darned. So, okay. Interesting. And, and you mentioned some of these, you know, consonants and dissonance, like some of these more abstract musical notions um, you still apply today in the workplace, don't you? Everything applies everywhere. Everything's connected to everything. You know, I, um, you know, and it's a little bit of a parlor trick, right? Um, you can, you can, it's, it's pretty easy to take, two ideas that don't seem to go together, juxtapose them and ask, how do they go together? Like right. at least at a meta level of metaphor, what are their origins? Right. Um, you know, I, I, um, um, somebody once said of, uh, of Mark, of Karl Marx. And I'm, I like Marx a lot. I like Marx and Engels, those guys. I like revolutions cause they had stuff done. Um, but, um, and even if you're not a socialist, you should read Marx. It'll teach a lot about how capital works. But somebody said of Marx that, that he took far-flung ideas, rubbed them together, and made revolutionary fire. And I realize I've been doing that all my life. So if you can take, you can take you know, the Ramones and something, I don't know, let's say, say the arts, take Rothko. Yeah. Like Rothko has the same kind of power with a kind of subtle shimmery quality of a distorted guitar. Mm -hmm. If you look at his color fields, you take that and you can apply that. There's a, I'm sure you can apply that to like managing a PL. Right. No doubt. You just have to, you just have to like sit back and kind of let the ideas work on you. Let the, the subconscious do its thing and it'll produce, it will produce brilliance. Every last one of us is a genius. Genius is what you do. It's how you approach the world. Um, so anyway, right on. This, right is, on. This, this is how Peter's mind thinks. I love it, man. So, so who are some of your favorite inspirations outside of cybersecurity then? Um, and, and why are they your favorites? Cause obviously mm -hmm. you're, you're tying everything to everything. So it, it, you've got to have a, you, you mentioned you're good at lists, right? So I'm guessing you have a top 10 list of applying everything to everything. Like what are those mm -hmm. favorite influences that have helped shape cyber and, and why are those your favorites? Yeah, like one of them, um, and I actually have a, you can't see this because this is audio, but on my hand, um, I'm showing this to Alan, I have a symbol that, that stands, it's called Aleph Naught or Aleph Null. Okay. And, and the Aleph, Aleph Naught, and I'm going I'm to get the term wrong because I'm terrible at math, but it's like the closest thing to magic we've got. And so I love it. Um, Aleph Naught, I think they call, they say is the, the cardinality of all sets. Okay. Which is, it's an infinity. And the yeah. fact that there are multiple infinities is like pretty cool. Um, it was the invention of a fellow named um, Georg Cantor. And Georg Cantor received, he, he said that he received the discrete math from, from God. Okay. This is before, like, this is around like Wittgenstein. And Wittgenstein like looked at Georg's work, uh, Georg Cantor's work around 
set theory, like Cantor basically invented discrete math. Wittgenstein, who's a pretty smart guy, um, was like, this is nuts. Like, this can't be the case. And yet, all of computing depends on the works of Gator Cantor. Um, so I love that. Like, you have a guy, and by the way, he was, you know, nobody like said that, said that diagnosis, but he was probably had bipolar disorder. This is probably psychosis right. that yielded up these ideas. But I love the idea that you have something that is divine revelation, supposedly, and that turns into something that has shaped the world in the future. Right? Yep. So there's get like the other the other thing I love about the Aleph null is the Aleph. So the Aleph is the name, and it, I mean, yeah, it's a Hebrew letter, right? But it's also the name of a short story by an author named Jorge Luis Borges. Oh, I know Borges. Yeah. So for the audience, B R G E S. He was from uh, Buenos Aires. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the the head of the National Library in Ar- of Argentina. He was blind, <laughs> and he is considered by most people in Latin America, and I live in Latin America, by the way, um, to be their Shakespeare. Him yeah. and like Roberto Bolaño, who was yeah. from Chilean, but a lot of people think was from Mexico City because he wrote about Mexico City. Um, but Borges is absolutely wonderful. I came to Borges through the intro to a book um, called Weaving the Web. It's Tim Berners-Lee's book. And the intro was written by, I'm going to get it wrong, but this guy mentions a story called The Garden of Working Paths, in which Borges, I think in the 30s or 20s, uh, foreshadows hyperlinks and the World Wide Web. And oh, he mentioned, nice. and, and the, the author of the foreword, I think it was Gibson, maybe. Get okay. it for yourself. It's called, uh, uh, yeah, Weaving the Web, Tim Berners-Lee, wonderful book. Um, so Borges is a hero of mine. But, you know, you, I mean, the, the, the idea of heroes itself is so interesting. Mm-hmm. And um, particularly now, because we need heroes. And, yeah, we do. And, and, and in fact, you know, people ask me to, 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 um, mentor them from time to time. And I, and, and I have some questions I send them first. They say, who are your heroes? And if they don't have any heroes, I'm like, you're not ready yet. You're not ready for this. Like, so let's not even start. I get to work with my heroes. Like I met, you know, and he's going to blush when he hears this. Michael Santarcangelo was always one of my heroes. Oh, you know, I listened to his pod. I used to listen to his podcast. and like Paul Osterling's podcast. And I yep. did something else. And Paul's had a lot of great stuff and it was entertaining and the others were fine. But my, with Michael, I always felt, felt like I was talking to somebody who just got it and he was searching yeah. and he didn't have it all together. But I just loved, I would listen to his stuff and I, none of the facts would stick to my brain, but I was like, ah, that guy gets it. And so he's, he was one of my heroes. I only met him really a couple months ago. Oh, wow. Um, you are one of my heroes. Oh, no way. Yes, you are. Right. But I've, I've worked with, I've, I studied at the feet of the masters, people like Marcus Renum, people like Chris Klaus, people like, you know, I, I once did a mini tour with when I was at McAfee with Bruce Schneier. I'm like, who put me on stage with this guy? Right. I'm, I'm nobody. And he was so sweet. He was such a nice guy. And we have an opportunity right now to, um, to, to sometimes actually collaborate with um, people who, you know, a hundred years from now will be in history books. Yeah. And maybe we will be in history books. I mean, how, what, what kind of opportunity do we have here? And so, you know, 
that drives a certain amount of like awareness of history that for me starts 11 trillion years or 11 billion years ago where we, and then, and then leads to the question, what am I going to do with this moment? Right. And if I don't take this moment in sort of cosmic history and the fact that we may not have much of it left, maybe a hundred, 200 years left of like civilization, we don't do something extraordinary with it. We've wasted something precious. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's an old saying, you know, tongue in cheek, but it still resonates with me. It's this idea that every one of your ancestors, you know, it was survival of the fittest, and 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 they made it, and and then their progeny made it, and their progeny made it, and their progeny made it, and here you are, you are the pinnacle of just absolute badassery. And what are you doing about that? <laughs> yeah, well, and then like the stats, people will be like, or will be like, or probably people will be like, well, the odds of that happening now are one out of one like that's fine but like what's next right like what is the what are the improbable things that are about to happen tomorrow this very conversation is extremely weird right how did this happen right i'm sitting here in oaxaca mexico you're in i don't know you guess dallas texas Texas. you're in dallas there's you know udp data or datagrams flowing back and forth like this is completely bizarre and unnatural and yet we're doing it (laughs) right I love it. I love it. So, all right, let's talk about some of this stuff from the the biggest booms in your life, uh, life altering material, and that could be a book, a movie, a body of work, a discipline, a philosophy. You know, something that altered your life so significantly that you can't not relate it to cyber. Just that big one that's always there. Oh my God! They all relate to cyber. I'm not sure I have a good answer for this one because there's so many. I mean, one of them is getting sober in 06. Right I, almost, I almost died of alcoholism. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I carry a, a – there's a there's a tattoo on my finger. My very first one is a semicolon. And if you know what that means, you're one of my people. I don't know what that means. Um, I'll look it up. All right. <laughs> um, so that was a big one. Another was I – mean, because that was a moment where I, I sort of gave up trying to do everything on my own. And reaching okay. out to people and finding help, which right. in cybersecurity, for the same reasons that we've been talking about, like it is so vast and it's so hard to pin down that we have to collaborate. You know, we have to, you know, we can't be in an adversarial position with the CIO. This is right. one reason I love purple teaming. Love purple teaming. Yes. Don't, don't do a red team and not tell me about it. It's right. a waste of time and effort and money. Not Let's to mention culturally, you're creating divides and, and hostilities and resentments and. Yeah. I mean, the, the the enemy is, you know, the enemy. Right. <laughs> they don't need help, right? Right, um, right. Um, but, uh, but that was a big one. You know, an, another one was, you know, having kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I have two grown sons, they're 23 and 27. I now have a seven-year-old stepdaughter. Oh, right who refuses, but Who, by the way, refuses to speak English most of the time. She's a Mexicana. Right I'm, married to, I'm married to Oaxacana. Um, and, and having the opportunity to, to raise children, think I was done, do it again. Yeah. is fantastic. And, you know, the, the, um, I try to avoid the sort of, sort of paternalism, (laughs) but frankly, like the people who work for me, I feel like are, are, you know, they mean as much to me as my kids do. I love them, you know? Um, and I think the, the theme that through that, that runs through all of my career in my life is that all I have is curiosity and love. Everything else is an out, is an outgrowth of one of those things. Right on. 
Um, and the alternative is fear. Yeah. And I I have lots of that. I have lots of fear. Um, and so I, I pile as much love and curiosity as I can on it and things seem to work out. That's fantastic, man. That's a great life philosophy right there. Well, brilliant. Peter Schaubacher, thank you so much. This has been a fun and engaging conversation for me. I hope my listeners enjoy it as much as I did. Um, Learning, learning, learning your depths and learning your widths and, and learning about all these esoteric influences. It's outstanding, man. I always appreciate people that can think laterally. I always appreciate people who can draw on vast resources that most of us don't even have to draw on. And uh, absolutely, you're an outstanding specimen in that camp. Uh, so thank you so much, Peter. And it, Edward de Bono. Did you just did you just make an allusion to Edward de Bono I, and lateral thinking? I have yeah okay maybe a little. <laughs> I read that when I was four, I read that when I was I think fourteen. Okay, I, I read de Bono in uh, undergrad when I took a uh, my undergrad uh, that I finished when I went back as a grown up. I mentioned the eight years of undergrad. I went back as a grown up and did another three years and closed out with a generic liberal arts degree, but I chose my focus on leadership. Mm. And I read a lot of de Bono in my leadership classes because I had you know I had I had research classes and I had my uh, thesis class and all these other classes. And I always honed in on leadership and I leveraged De Bono for some really weird stuff in that leadership class. Uh, the lateral stuff flow, um, you know, was another one that I tapped into. Um, That's Chick awesome. Mahaley. I knew you were my people. I knew it. <laughs> and thanks for, thanks for doing this podcast. So we had an excuse to talk. This is I love delightful. it, man. I love it. I hope I hope our audience in, in, enjoys us indulging one another in our weird esoteric uh, bent. But uh, Peter, thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you, listeners, for hanging in there with us on this one. Y'all be good now. <laughs> <laughs>